Thank you, Lori. You would open your copies of God's Word and turn with me today to Acts chapter 7. We're going to finish this chapter today and look at verses 54 through 60. Also, go ahead and bookmark Hebrews 10. We're going to hop there mid-sermon, and there's a couple verses I'd like you to see. We're going to begin with the story of John Brown. This is not the radical abolitionist John Brown that we know from American history. This is John Brown, the Scottish Presbyterian who lived in the middle to late 1600s. He was uh, counted among the covenanters, uh, which meant that he rejected the notion that the king of England was also the king and head of the church. That was this belief, that the head of state was also head of the church. And John Brown's belief, a belief that we also hold, is that Jesus Christ is the only king and head of his church. Not a political leader, not a king or president or prime minister. But in John Brown's day, prelacy was adopted as the law of the land. Prelacy is the Episcopal form of church government. This top-down government where the king was head of the church. So not only did... Was everyone required to pray for the king? But they had to submit to him as head. And the covenanters refused to do this. And as a result, they were hunted down and persecuted and murdered. One of those hunters who did the persecuting was a man named John Graham of Claverhouse. If you read John Brown's story, you'll hear about Claverhouse. That's, that's this man. So he's known as Claverhouse, also nicknamed by the Covenanters uh, Bloody Clavers. But he, uh, he had a similar role as did Saul of Tarsus. Saul made it his goal to hunt down and persecute the church. Claverhouse did the same thing with the Covenanters, hunting down those who would dare defy the king's order. And John Brown earned Claverhouse's attention. But it was never through violence, unlike the American John Brown, who was known for violence. John Brown, the Scot, was not violent. All he did was refused to attend worship services. He refused to go to these worship services and hear these Episcopal ministers who believed that the king was the head of the church. Instead, he and other like-minded individuals would go out into the countryside. They'd go out into the hills and meadows and forests. And in the outdoors, they would worship God and pray. They did this because they wanted to worship freely without the laws and strictures of men being laid upon them and forced upon them. So going out and worshiping out in the country might sound 
harmless to us. But this was an act of sedition. And it made John Brown a marked man, and his name was added to a list, and he became a fugitive. Persecutions began to heat up in the 1680s, so much that John Brown was forced to leave his home with his family and go into the rural countryside and seek shelter. And his family was not bothered for some time. But eventually, on May 2nd of 1685, Claverhouse tracked him down. And I want to read to you John Brown's story. It was between 5 and 6 in the morning after family worship. John Brown, with his young nephew, went out to cut peat. They had not been gone long when in the midst of the dark and thick mist, Claverhouse, with three troops of horse looking for covenanters, came upon them. Brown was questioned. He stammered in his speech normally, but in the questioning, his stammering disappeared. Claverhouse asked John why he did not attend the worship services and if he would pray for the king. John gave the usual covenanting answer that Christ, not the king, is the head of the church. And with that answer, he signed his own death warrant. Claverhouse escorted John Brown back to his front door and told him that he was going to die and said, Take goodbye of your wife and children. Back at his home, John Brown saw his wife, Isabel, standing there holding the hand of her daughter who was by her side and holding their young son. John Brown began to pray so fervently that the eyes of the soldiers present with Claverhouse began to tear up. Brown said to Isabel, Now, Isabel, the day has come that I told you would come when I first spoke of marrying me. And she said, Indeed, John, I can willingly part with you. That is all I desire, he replied. I have no more to do but to die. I've been a happy case to meet with death for so many years. And he kissed her, and then he blessed his children, saying, May all purchased and promised blessings be multiplied to you. And at this point, Claverhouse roughly broke in, No more of this! And he ordered six dragoons to shoot John Brown, but they stood motionless. Their hearts moved with pity. They refused to fire. Claverhouse, the killer of many, snatched a pistol from his belt, hastily walked up to John Brown, and shot the good man through the head. Looking at his ghastly work, with a scornful, jeering smile, he turned to Isabel, John's wife, and said, What do you think of your fine husband now? Through her sad tears, she bravely answered, I ever thought much good of him, more than ever now. Isabel Brown set her child down, gathered the pieces of her husband scattered on the ground, tied them in a plaid, sat down and wept. It was on a May morning, the first summer of the killing time, that Isabel offered the priceless jewel of her life, John Brown, her husband. He went swiftly to the company that he much longed for, where he would be much at home. Where does boldness 
like that come from? Where does hope like that come from? How can John Brown say something like, all I desire is to depart, to, to die? I, I've been a happy case to meet with death for so many years. Why would he say that? Because he knew the same thing Stephen knew. He knew the same Savior Stephen knew. One who died himself, but rose on the third day and lives forevermore. He knew the blessings and promises of the Scriptures. The same blessings and promises he spoke as a benediction over his children prior to his death. He knew those divine blessings and promises held him secure in Christ. So there was nothing for him to fear. That same confidence and trust and hope in the face of imminent death is what we see this week as Stephen becomes the first martyr to die for the name. The name of Jesus. And in looking at this text and seeing what Stephen saw, it's my hope that you and I would be held fast as well. So let's pray and then read our text. Father God, I stand before you as a broken, imperfect, cracked vessel. Would you fill me this morning with the beauty of your gospel, that it might be proclaimed to your people, that it would be beneficial to them and and helpful to them and and glorifying to you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 7, beginning in verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So as we begin the 
end of chapter 7, Stephen has finished his speech, all 53 verses of it. He's recounted the history of the people of Israel and has pointed to their rejection of the prophets and how they killed the prophets and how they're stiff-necked and they resist the Spirit of God and worship things made by their hands. And then he ends by saying, you are just like them. As your fathers did, so do you. You claim to be wise and you claim to be knowledgeable concerning the things of God and you act like you care and you're following the law of Moses, but you're not. You are spiritually blind. You are hard-hearted. So much so that you betrayed and murdered the righteous one. Luke then tells us their reaction to Stephen's words in verse 54. And the reaction is utter rejection. You remember back in Acts 2, Peter is preaching a sermon on Pentecost and Peter does not go any easier on the crowd. He says that they're lawless, that they crucified and killed the Messiah. It's it's a very similar message. But how do they respond? In Acts 2.37, we read, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So you have a positive reaction to the gospel. Repentance comes. They they come to saving faith. They confess their sins. They believe and go on to be baptized. That's not the same reaction that Stephen gets. This group is not struck by their guilt and are brought to repentance. Instead, they're boiling over with rage. And yet they heard the same message. The same message that Peter gave in Acts 2. And we're reminded of that saying, I can't remember who said it, I quoted it earlier, that the same sun which melts the ice also hardens the clay. The gospel message in Acts 2 melted the ice of their hearts and they repented. But here in Acts 7, they're only hardened. It's interesting because there's mention of being cut to the heart in Acts 2. And it's no different in Acts 7. The word is not used. We read that that they were enraged. But in the original language, it's almost as if the the word heart is, is there. And it's almost as if their heart is exploding in anger. Or their heart is being rent apart by anger. They're seeing red. So much so that Luke gives the details that they're grinding their teeth. Uh, Have you ever been that angry? So angry that your jaw is clenched shut? Maybe so much that your your teeth are sore later in the day or your, your jaw is sore? That's their reaction that rage that is just shooting through their veins. And, and what we read here and then what we see later in verse 57, this, this grinding of their teeth, this howling with rage, this losing control of themselves, it's, it sounds 
bestial. It's like they're acting like animals. And maybe you've experienced something like this before. You've, you've seen someone get so angry that all self-control just disappears. And they act like a rage-crazed animal. It's a scary and intimidating thing to encounter. Nothing you can say can calm them down. Well, Stephen, it's not just one person, it's an entire crowd. And the ironic thing is that these are the cultured, educated, dignified, sophisticated people. Acting like rage-crazed animals. One more thing uh, before we move on. In a second, we're going to see that Stephen is getting a foretaste of glory. Stephen, in this moment, is going to be comforted and receive a preview of heaven. But I believe here we have something of the opposite. A warning. A, a, a preview of what is to come for the unrepentant. Over and over again in Scripture, how, how do we see hell described? It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here is a foretaste for those who are in utter rebellion before God and reject His gospel and are violent and filled with hatred and grind their teeth. It's a foretaste for those who remain unrepentant in their sins. Next we see Stephen's vision. It's in the moment before he's carried outside of town. He's given this foretaste, a a preview, or almost an assurance of glory. It's another one of those instances in Scripture where the curtain that seems to separate the spiritual reality from what you and I can see and hear and experience. It's almost like that, that curtain is pulled back between the spiritual and the physical world and the viewer is allowed to see the spiritual reality that's going on that normally we are ignorant to. Well, that curtain is pulled back and Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And again, here, I'm just reminded of another parallel with Moses that we've seen over and over and over. Moses desired to see the Lord's glory, asked to see his glory, and God tells him, I'm not going to show you my face. No one can see my face and live, but I'll show you my back. Stephen here as well sees in in this moment of greatest need, he sees the glory of God. Then we're told he sees the Lord Jesus as well. He sees the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I think this is a desire we all have. We talk so much about Jesus, we pray to Jesus, we read about Jesus, we would call ourselves his disciples. He is the reason we're here this morning, and yet we have never seen him. 
We have not seen him as Stephen did that day. But we will one day. One day, someday, we will see him. Thomas Boston wrote that we will see Jesus Christ with our bodily eyes. We shall see with our eyes the very body born of Mary at Bethlehem and crucified at Jerusalem between two thieves. We will see the blessed head that was crowned with thorns, the face that was spit upon, the hands and feet that were nailed to the cross. We will see all of them shining with inconceivable glory. Stephen here sees what every believer will one day see. And what's the posture here? We might read past this and miss it. What's Jesus' posture? He's standing. And we see this is not a misprint. It's repeated in verse 55 and 56. Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. Now, if you know your Apostles' Creed, which we all do, we say it every third week, you know it ends speaking of Jesus saying that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So the Apostles' Creed says that he is seated. Stephen sees him standing. What's going on? Well, first we need to say that the Creed is right to say that Jesus Christ is seated. He has been given all authority and power. He tells his disciples that in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he ascends and sits in the place of highest honor as king of kings, lord of lords. He also sits as a judge. You know, judges don't stand in the courtroom. They sit. Paul says in Acts 17 that a day has been fixed when Christ will judge the world in righteousness. So he's seated as a king who has all authority. He's sitting as a judge who will judge all people. He's also sitting because there's no more work to be done. There's no more work for him to do. Maybe at some point you've had a job, maybe you have one now, where to do your work you never get to sit down. Or the work never ends. I have the, an image in, in my head of, of just almost like an assembly line, things coming to you over and over and over again, and the only break you're going to get is if you just go outside and take a break. Because the work is never going to stop coming. There's never-ending supply coming before you. Some of you feel like you have jobs like that. Some of you do have jobs like that. Well, if you were a priest in the tabernacle or the temple, that was you. There were no chairs in the temple. You remember all the furniture we talked about at the end of Exodus? There weren't any chairs. There, there, were, there was an altar and a table and a wash basin and curtains and the Ark of the Covenant and the lampstand, but there were no chairs. There are no chairs because the priest's work never ended. Never ended. 
It just kept coming and coming and coming. Turn to Hebrews 10. I want you to see this with me. This idea of why the priests could not sit down. Hebrews 10, 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Paul's there. So no chair, because the job was never done. Every day you're standing, offering the same sacrifices over and over and over again because they could not or never take away sins. Then what do we see in verse 12? Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being Sanctified. Jesus Christ did what no other priest had been able to do. Offer one sacrifice for sin. His body on the cross. And in doing so, he fully satisfied the demands of divine justice and there's nothing left to do. What did he say on the cross? To Telestai meaning it is finished. There's nothing left to be done. No more sacrifices to make. No more sin to atone for. And he was able to sit, illustrating the great work of atonement was finished. All of this, his his work as our high priest, his work as... uh, his, His work as a judge, his fact that he is king of kings, all of this is why the Apostles' Creed says that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. So if that's true, why does Stephen see him standing? A couple reasons. Whenever we see something unjust, maybe we're watching something on TV and we see something unjust and it makes us jump up off the couch. We rise to our feet in indignation. Surely, the treatment of Stephen, surely what was going to happen to him was something that the Son of God found as abhorrent. And he's rising to his feet in indignation. There's also this idea that Jesus tells us in in Matthew 10, 32, he says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So you have this image of him standing. And here is a man who is about to die a violent death because he has acknowledged the Lord Jesus before men. He has not denied him. He has not recanted he has held him he has held his his ground and here is the lord jesus rising to acknowledge stephen before the father 
Psalm 116.15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. This is not something that went apart from his notice. It's not something he overlooked. This was a precious moment, and the Savior rises to his feet to greet and receive this servant who's about to be with his Lord. There's also something else. Another thing to think about why Jesus is standing. We sang this morning in our our first hymn that God is our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. And Jesus Christ is our defender. He is rising to defend Stephen. And you think about what has Stephen just been involved in? A trial. He's been in a courtroom. He's been arrested and brought in and questioned and asked to testify. And he's been found guilty. The judge has been unjust. Stephen has no advocate. He's going to be condemned, at least from an earthly perspective. And in this vision, before his death, Stephen is shown a greater courtroom and a greater judge. And in this court, Stephen has an advocate and will not be condemned. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are on trial. You yourself, and you're sitting in the courtroom, and you are sitting alone at the defense table. The prosecutor stands and begins to lay out his case against you and calls witnesses and questions you, and the entire time you're extremely anxious because you have no defense counsel. Well, imagine that once the prosecutor is finished... He makes his way back to his table and sits down. And then the judge rises from the bench. And the judge walks down front and stands before you and says, I'm your counsel. I'm going to represent you. That would bring great assurance, wouldn't it? great comfort that the judge is also your defender, that that the one seated in the place of authority is also your advocate. I mean, the prosecutor would just have to throw his hands up and be like, there's no winning here. There's not for the prosecutor because the judge is your defender. Stephen sees this heavenly court And unlike the earthly court, he is not condemned. Instead, his master stands to take his defense and be his advocate and plead his case. We're reminded in 1 John 2 that we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. I think we forget that. We forget we have an advocate We forget we have one who stands and defends us and says, you are my own. I died for you. My blood covered your sins. You are clothed in my righteousness. We forget that the judge of heaven 
is the very same person who submitted himself to the judgment of God for our sakes. The judge is the very one who removed all the curse from me. This idea of Christ as defender and judge, it's something that is only true for the Christian. For those who have not believed on him, to them they will only experience Christ as judge. But for the believer, he is judge and advocate. Do we know him as a defender? Stephen sees this. He sees it and he begins to speak and he tells those around him what he's seeing. This, this furious mob, he, he repeats to them exactly what he's seeing. And we see they respond in the same just furious, just bestial way. And have you ever tried to talk to someone and they don't, they don't want to hear what you have to say? And so in a very childish way, every time you open your mouth to speak, they just scream. To drown you out. I can't hear you. And so they just, they scream, they cover their ears so that they won't have to hear what you're saying. That's what this group does to Stephen. They have no interest in hearing what he has to say, so they yell and they stop their ears. And now, being unable to hold themselves back any longer, they rush at him, drag him outside of the city, and stone him. And here we see a very important name in verse 58. Those who were engaged in the stoning were told they laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul is a Roman citizen from the city of Tarsus. He's probably a member of the Sanhedrin at this point. And this is our first introduction to a man who will go on to be known as the Apostle Paul. And the first time we're introduced to him, he's watching people's clothes as Stephen is killed. And you might think, all right, what's, what's the deal here? Well, commentator Frederick Bruckner helps us. He says, quote, Stoning somebody to death is not easy. You do not get the job done with the first few rocks. And even after you get the man down, it is a long, hot business. To prepare themselves for the workout, they stripped to the waist and got someone to keep an eye on their things till they were through. The man they got was a fire-breathing, young, arch-conservative Jew named Saul, who was there because he thoroughly approved of what they were doing. That's our introduction to the Apostle Paul. Holding the clothes for people who are pummeling Stephen with rocks so harshly that they are working up a sweat. They don't want to soil their clothes with sweat, 
And so they get Saul to watch him. And in the midst of this, we have Stephen's reaction, and it is unbelievable. Commentator Kent Hughes made the point, made a point that should resonate with all of us, that, that death will ultimately reveal what each of us truly is. So we can, we can fake it, we can put on a mask, we can fool people, but in the moment of death, in the hour of death, there's no more games, no more mystery. The truth about who we really are is revealed. And Stephen, in this moment, we see who he truly is. That he is a Christian. He, he, is, he is a disciple of his Lord. And that comes out in, I mean, don't these words sound familiar? They should. Because these exact words, both of them, Lord, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold these sins against them. He's speaking the same words that Jesus spoke from the cross. In his death, he is revealing who he truly is. He is a Christian. And don't miss the answered prayer here. Stephen is saying, Lord, Do not hold these sins against them. Lord, forgive them. Lord, open their eyes. They don't know what they're doing. Bring them to faith. Show them your son. Lord, save them. We don't know about most of the people who were there. We don't know what happened with them. But we do know something about one. This man who stood there and approvingly watched as Stephen was stoned and he kept track of everyone's clothing. We know that he would go on and this prayer, Stephen's prayer, would be answered. And this man would meet the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then he would be on fire and planting churches and traveling all over like a madman and getting beaten up himself and thrown out of town and spend nights in prison cells and write half the New Testament. Stephen's prayer is answered. And then at the very end, in verse 60, we read, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. We talked about this a little bit last summer uh, when we did our study on the new heavens and new earth and this terminology that we see in Scripture a lot to describe someone who has died, that it said that they had fallen asleep. This doesn't teach the doctrine of soul sleep, that we're just, that we're just unconscious. That's, that's not the idea here. It's that death for us is as peaceful and as easy as sleep because of the death of Jesus. The Bible never says that Jesus fell asleep. The Bible says that he died. And he died so that death for us would be merely like falling asleep. Dr. Thomas in his book says, quote, death is like falling asleep. Some die violently and painfully, but even then, when the moment arrives, they close their eyes and appear to fall asleep. 
Sleep is usually a desirable experience. Sleep deprivation is debilitating. We need sleep. It is a welcome release from the toil of the day. And dying is like falling asleep at the end of a long, hard day. We have no need to be afraid of it. On the contrary, it is a friend, especially if we know where this will take us. Not to a land of dreams and unconsciousness, but to wake up on the other side in a place of glory and beauty and the presence of Jesus. This is the hope of the Christian. That one day, someday, certain hope that is true for every person who trusts in and rests on Jesus Christ alone for salvation. The hope that when we die and our loved ones who have already gone before us, that we and they are asleep, at rest, in a place of glory and beauty in the presence of Jesus. It's the hope Stephen had. It's the hope John and Isabel Brown had. And by God's grace, it's the hope you and I have. That our judge is also our advocate. And that when we fall asleep, he rises to greet and welcome us home. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this text reminds us of two very simple but hard things. Number one, we as your people will have enemies and you have not given us the freedom to hate those enemies. You have called us to love them. Stephen had enemies who wanted him dead and yet he loved them. Yet even in that moment, he, he prayed, Lord, they don't know what they're doing. Don't hold this sin against them. Lord, we do have enemies, but our call is to love them, just as Stephen did, just as our Lord did. Father, help us before we are tempted to cry injustice, not fair. Help us to remember that there will be justice. Every sin will be accounted for. Every sin will be paid for in eternity, in hell, or it'll be paid for on the cross, on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. Father, may we see this beautiful vision. This vision Stephen saw, would, would, would the, the hope and the thought of it fill our hearts and give us such courage and assurance that nothing, no one on the face of this earth can intimidate or buffalo us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.